Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for sending your podcast out of 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson, joined once again by my colleagues, my friends, my boon companions here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas. It's time. In fact, we're overdue to cover 2022 in 22 minutes. Bruce DT, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks, Dino. It's good to be back. One of the reasons we are overdue is just how busy these past couple of months have been. You know, just sort of set the scene. Congress was in uninterrupted session most of the past two months. They've just completed a two-week recess here over the Easter Passover holidays, and now they're back. It's really a dead sprint to the August recess. May, June, July, this is the meat of the congressional calendar, particularly in an election year, because once you're back from Labor Day, the campaign season is really in full swing and not a lot of hardcore legislating likely to happen unless and until uh, there's a lame duck session, which we can get into. I want to mention one thing here at the top of the show this weekend, a lion of the Senate passed away, Senator Orrin Hatch. I did have the privilege of interacting with Senator Hatch on a number of occasions. You couldn't question his ideological bona fides, but of that generation of senators who just got stuff done, and if that required a partnership with Ted Kennedy, his ideological and temperamental opposite, (laughs) that's, that's that's what he did. Uh, look, you know, Dean, it, to me, and I, I have less direct interaction with Senator Hatch than you were able to as a Senate chief of staff yourself. To your point, he, to me, along with Senator Kennedy, represents an era that I sorely miss, you know, one where ideological opposites would work together, recognizing the founders built a system predicated on compromise and you don't have to agree with the other party. You don't have to agree with the other president. But if they uh, nominate someone qualified, you vote for them for confirmation uh, and you work with the other side to come to a, uh, a compromise that advances the ball, even if it's not perfect. I'll just say this. I uh, being on the, on the Dem side, of the aisle, I didn't get to work with uh, Senator Hatch as much as I might have liked when I was in government. But I will say this. I have gotten to work with his team and his alumni uh, staff uh, quite a bit since leaving the Hill. And I think if you uh, measure a man by uh, the people he mentors, boy, does he have a good uh, good group of people who work for him downtown, who are quality people, who are smart, not partisan, uh, thoughtful, uh, everything you'd want in a good staff. Uh, I guess indirectly, that's my experience with Senator Hatch. A lot of stories have been shared today. And I'll, I'll just real my favorite one I think was from Senator Gardner, uh, who was down on the Senate floor talking about the legalization of marijuana in Utah. And uh, Senator Hatch walked up and he deadpanned, first tea, then coffee, now this. <laughs> 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 All right, let's lightning round this thing up because there is just a lot going on. We'll just, we'll just throw it out there. Why don't we, David, you want to start? The circus is back in town. Uh, House and Senate back in session together for the first time in a couple of weeks. What do we see here on the short-term agenda? 
Uh, yeah, I'll run through a few things here. And Dean, you're right. This is going to be the, the real meat of the legislative uh, season here between now and Memorial Day. So here are some of the big ticket items. I think that the biggest of them all is competes, Zika, chips, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, the mother of all conferences here. Uh, the House has appointed conferees. Uh, almost everybody is a conferee in the House, it seems like. Uh, so many people got appointed. Uh, the Senate has to go through a few more procedural hoops, but we know who the conferees uh, are going to be. I expect that to get done this week. And then uh, we're going to see if it's a real conference here and, and how that is going to come together. I think the general uh, assumption here is that the bill will be closer to the Senate product than the House, uh, which you know really burns all those... Uh, House members up there, but yeah, that's certainly know. the Senate presumption. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, the house I think has gotten used to it at over the years. Uh, but that is going to be the biggest thing to watch here, uh, going on a, a couple others. Number one, the president spoke out uh, late last week on the need for another uh, emergency supplemental bill to support Ukraine. That is something that I expect kicks off pretty quickly this week here. Uh, both the Secretary of the State and uh, the Secretary of Defense uh, are meeting with President Zelensky today. So I think we'll have some more clarity on exactly what that package is, uh, at least the request is going to look like. So that's out there. Uh, that gets you to the other supplemental request, which didn't get over the finish line before we left, the COVID supplemental. That is something that's been requested by the administration. Uh, prepare not just for the next uh, variant of COVID, but for the next pandemic. It got tied up into the immigration debate over refugees at the border. Uh, Title 42 is what the policy is called here uh, and withdrawing that. So that has to get straightened out. That is a big ticket item. Those are sort of the big ones. And then you've got sort of everything else. It's appropriation season. Boy, if you haven't got your uh, appropriation requests in, you better get them in this week because that's uh, cooking uh, the defense authorization bill. Uh, that's going to move uh, forward here pretty quickly. And then uh, finally, the other one that's sort of hanging out uh, in the shadows, of course, is whatever's less to build back better. And can that uh, sort of uh, be <laughs> Phoenix rising from the ashes in West Virginia once again? Uh, we'll see. So those are some of the things that I'm going to be watching. The more I hear directly from Senator Manchin in the press, uh, the less concerned I am that Build Back Better is going to be resurrected. It's it's when they go quiet, I, I get a little concerned. Well, I, I think I'm off my talking points in that I'm not supposed to use the word Build Back Better, but I don't oh, know what right. else to say. So we'll uh, just call it the, the legislation formerly known as Build Back Better. Yeah, so Senate, Senate this week uh, will we'll probably finish the procedural uh, necessities for getting into formal conference with the House on the China Competition Bill. By one count, there are 1,400 individual line items uh, needing reconcil reconcil reconciling between the House and Senate bills. They're going to need some motions to instruct non-binding votes on the Senate floor, but they'll probably do, uh, I've heard, 10 per side, get unanimous consent to get uh, get that motion through. The COVID supplemental bill seemed teed up to go. It's just that Republicans wanted a vote on lifting Title 42 at the southern border. They wanted to put Democrats on record. With that vote, we feel like this thing's starting to starting to move. Boy, I, I tell you what, uh, based on the number of Democratic senators I've seen down at the border talking about their disagreement with the president over his uh, suggested move to withdraw this policy, I'd say uh, they're, they're either going to get a vote on it or the president's going to have to withdraw. But either way, there does not seem to be the support there. I think it goes to the larger picture of uh, legitimate frustrations, immigration advocates on the lack of uh, any movement on uh, any sort of immigration reform over the past uh, 16 months now. But this is a real pickle for the president that that he's going to have to work his way out of. But when you see senators from uh, uh, New Hampshire, Montana, 
and other states that are very far away from the border speaking out against this policy, that's a problem for the president. Well, and DT, I don't know if you agree, but it feels like it's, it is definitely the sharpest edge, but uh, there are a lot of pickles in the same barrel. You know, another one might be the energy prices where, uh, you know, I see the border problem is that the White House is caught between the progressive left, which wants fewer restrictions on uh, on immigration to the United States, more refugees, et cetera, and the moderates, independents in the country and all of the Republicans who believe we ought to have greater control over the border, particularly at a time of pandemic uh, and, and other risks. And you see the same thing with energy. You have the far left saying this is the opportunity to get rid of all fossil fuels, although realistically there aren't renewable replacements at the moment. You have the mansion moderate, all of the above approach. And then you have the a lot of independents and a lot of Republicans saying, well, why don't we max out our own fossil fuel capabilities? Because that's what op- that increases our geopolitical optionality. And again and again, Uh, While the Republican civil war gets more ink, in part because the mainstream media likes it, and in part because there's, you know, I think we probably major in crazy town better than you do. um, There's a democratic civil war. It's been alive, and it's more than anything else creating a problem for the White House. Uh, I'm so glad you brought this up, Bruce, because I think I've heard you talk about the democratic civil war a number of times here. Democrats don't agree on the ways to get to certain policies on health care. There is general agreement that more people should have health care within the Democratic Party. There is disagreement on how you get there. There is general agreement that the cost of college is too high, but there is disagreement over how you take on that policy. On climate, you can say the same thing. There are many issues here. The Democrats, there are disagreements on policy. Let's look at the Republican side here if we're going to talk about disagreements here. And what happened on Friday? This is over one day. You had Kevin McCarthy, the wannabe Speaker of the House getting caught in a bold face lie on tape uh, regarding what he said in the aftermath of January 6th. Number two, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene testifying in court uh, and clearly being dishonest on her involvement in January 6th. You have Madison Cawthorn releasing you know, these salacious photos on his vacation. That was one day here. I will take our policy fights any day of the week. Easy, easy for me to do. So the misdirection of true chaos among some of the more extreme Republicans, as well as the McCarthy v. McCarthy uh, saga notwithstanding, DT, what we were talking about is the challenge on America's border with Mexico, historic levels of illegal immigration and migrant encounters, and why the president's approval rating is at historic lows for this president and for any president other than Donald Trump uh, at this point in their presidency. I was suggesting that I think one of the challenges is administration doesn't want to commit to a tough border policy and doesn't want to commit to a soft border policy. And you suggest that the issue really is Madison Cawthorn wearing lingerie on a boat trip. Okay, I think the problem for the Democrats in the midterm and for the uh, Biden, should he run for reelection, is they're going to have to pick a side and the Democrats themselves, to the credit of being a more diverse party, don't agree on policy, and that's where they have a problem. You that can is tr- what politics well, is, Bruce. Not everybody agrees on every policy, and you work it out. But what you don't see is a threat to our democratic foundations going on within the Democratic Party. Let me continue here because I didn't get to finish here. 
you know what? You are right. It is going to be very tough for the Democrats to do well in the midterm elections. Histori- you know, history says that Republicans lose seats in the House and Senate. That is true. Your slideshow points that out, much to my chagrin, because we speak quite a bit on this. But you know what may save us here is like the unforced error of the, the uh, uh, House and Senate Republicans here may snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. If I look at the Senate races right now that are going on in Missouri, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, you have a chance uh, where every one of those seats should be a pickup here, but Democrats may be in the game because of candidates who cannot win. Well, you're right, of course. At the end of the day, the election's about accountability, accountability to Democrats for how they're governing and accountability for Republicans, depending upon who the nominees are. Dean Hinkson, as, as somebody who's followed the Senate super close, I'm interested in your take because as I take a look, you know, Trump's uh, endorsing Doc Oz, Trump's endorsing J.D. Vance. Um, it feels to me that the tie that binds right now, as I try to think about why is he picking the people he's picking, is he defaults every time to whoever is a bigger celebrity. Well, the Dr. Oz, the Dr. Oz endorsement seemed to come from Melania Trump as the, as the chief lobbyist. I mean, I think that's one of the indicators. It's it's a very inside game with getting the Trump endorsement. But Ballotpedia is is trying to track the endorsements from the mayoral city council level all the way up through House Senate and gubernatorial endorsements. Uh, and he's uh, closing in on about 200 endorsed candidates across the country. That That's going to be the real tell here of the Trump influence in the Republican Party going forward. How many of these candidates that he's endorsed win the nomination and how many go on to actually win elected office? Ohio and Pennsylvania seem to be trying to outdo one another for a level of craziness in the primary. I think Herschel Walker's got Georgia in the bag and the McCrory Bud. Republican primary down in North Carolina is getting into toss-up territory. McCrory was leading that for quite some time. Bud has the Trump endorsement. Bud has seeded his primary campaign over to Club for Growth. We'll see if that's a winning strategy. I don't know that it is. Let's pull back here on the midterms because there's one item that didn't make the list. Bruce, I want to get your take on this. There's something happening here with comprehensive data privacy. There is a four corners negotiation going on between Senate and House Commerce Committee leaders. I spoke to one staff director uh, last week who the negotiations were so sensitive, they were in the cone of silence. This is this has been tried now for uh, for several Congresses. We've been trying to get a consumer data privacy law. Is this the negotiation that turns the trick? I started working on internet consumer privacy in the year 1998, which was going to be the year of privacy, which is something I then said, it's the next year in Jerusalem of tech policy. It never seems to happen. I would still, because it's an election year, because the parties started so far away from one another, uh, because they're also focused on a variety of other things, um, whether it's Section 230 or antitrust, albeit that, of course, the judiciary uh, were the lead. Um, but, but there are elements that commerce is going to uh, sniff around on. It's still a really tough putt to do anything comprehensive. The really interesting thing for me is the uh, Marsha Blackburn, uh, uh, Blumenthal, Blumenthal. Yep. and uh, and Wicker have a piece of legislation which you know they're not chairing the committees. The chair of the committee uh, Cantwell is not on it yet. But for the first time ever, you have a bipartisan bridging of both private right of action and of federal preemption. To the extent the parties are going to, you know, those have always been the 
you know, the, the ceiling and the floor that neither would go either above or below respectively. And therefore you couldn't find a middle. I think the negotiations will be, uh, will make a lot of noise and the sound and fury will signify something. I just don't know that I think comprehensive has met its year, maybe next Congress. So next year is what you're saying, Bruce. <laughs> next year in Jerusalem. <laughs> next year in Jerusalem. A couple of extraneous events that I think are pretty telling about uh, where we are that may inform uh, what happens uh, here on the Hill here in the administration. But I'll just throw these up as jump balls. What do we make of uh, Elon Musk and, the, and, and his attempt to buy Twitter? Uh, we talk a lot about social media, these platforms, who can speak who can say what, who's being deplatformed, who's being canceled. And Musk seems prepared to step in here and just buy the whole thing and open it up to a free-for-all, I guess. Yeah. So uh, this is fascinating. There are two levels to this. One is Twitter has massively underperformed as a business. The product is unbelievably valuable and important to many of us. Um, but if you take a look at their capacity to monetize, given who's on it and what they do, massively underperformed. And people like Scott Scott Galloway have written about you know changes he thinks he would make if he were in charge of Twitter. So you've long had a lot of folks suggesting that the stock should be a lot more valuable because the company should be run in a smarter and better way. Parallel to that, you have the ongoing fight about what is and isn't free speech, what the duties of content moderation are or may not be for a, a social media platform. Uh, and whether or not uh, there is too much or too little censorship. Obviously, it gets super political. I think most Republicans you talk to would say that China should be deplatformed, but that the uh, people in Silicon Valley who aren't elected shouldn't have the right to deplatform government people, which I guess doesn't apply to the people that they don't like. And, and you know, and the Dems often are vice versa. Musk being Musk is both, you know, he's made a ton of money on his initial stake because the stock's gone way up once it's demonstrated his interest. So A, as always, you know, the rich got richer, but B, you know, he's suggesting and he's promising a uh, a future Twitter that doesn't deplatform the president after January 6th. And it doesn't take down the, you know, turned out truthful uh, Hunter Biden, New York Post story. The downside of such a Twitter is it also might not take down actual disinformation and things that are destructive to the fabric of the country. Other big item last week when when Governor DeSantis revoked Disney's uh, special tax status, uh, who knew that Disney World was governed much like the Vatican? Uh, they were their own. They were their own oasis uh, with wonderful, there. colorful uh, costumes. Yeah. <laughs> Like, Swiss Guard costumes are pretty colorful too, Bruce. That's what I'm saying. Oh, that's why they're similar. Yeah, I think if we sat down and uh, yeah, I, I bet there's a lot of parallels between Disney World and the Vatican. What do we make of this? Is this another? Is this another step in the in the rebranding? The latest evidence that the sort of the Chamber of Commerce view of Republicans is not match reality. Boy, I, I think it's fascinating, uh, Dean. To me, when I look at this more than anything else, this is uh, an effort by Governor DeSantis to continue to give himself name recognition with the MAGA Trump base, should he decide to run for president, uh, whether or not Trump runs or not. You know, this to me is, I'm going to take, you know, in this case, I take on woke companies. I, I'm going to own the libs. And so I'll stick it to Disney. So I think there are two different things. I mean, first, DeSantis, going after Disney was, was sort of round two. DeSantis didn't, what's happening wasn't initially DeSantis thinking, how do I bait Disney into getting a fight with me? What DeSantis originally did with the legislation was 
Uh, my own belief is solving a problem that isn't a problem that doesn't exist. But what they suggested is that you shouldn't teach sex, sexual identity and gender fluidity to people in kindergarten, children, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. You know, I, I don't actually think that was probably happening, but that was the legislation. Disney then initially said, well, gosh, you know, we're not expert in education. We're not expert in the proper curriculum for, you know, for uh, first and K and all that's, you know, they're not educators. That's not what they do. And so they stayed out of it. And then they heard from some in their workforce, uh, you know, that this could create the risk for, uh, let's say, uh, lesbian employees, you know, two moms. Uh, with kids in school, can can the kid not talk about their moms, or can the teacher not talk about the kid having two moms? And you know, where would that go? So it created understandable concern among some among Disney's employee base, but also frustration that Disney, the corporate entity, wasn't adequately aggressive in their mind in going after DeSantis and weighing in on the legislation, and that led to round two. So DeSantis's cultural war wasn't aimed at Disney. It's just when Disney decided that they would come in aggressively criticizing the legislation, that's when DeSantis said, fine, you want to pick a fight. And there he's trying to, you know, we've seen this. We saw this a little bit with the Virginia uh, gubernatorial election in 2001. Hell, you saw this with a recall election in San Francisco, where the members of the school board who said, instead of figuring out how to reopen the schools, we're going to take Abraham Lincoln and Dianne Feinstein's name off the schools because it turns out they're racist in the minds of those three board members. They got recalled with 70%. You know, it's frustrating and depressing that the cultural wars are as intense as they are. You know, the, the, uh, the left can overreach and the right can overreach. And what I'm seeing is politicians looking for what they perceive as overreach and trying to score points by going after what they think are low hanging fruit. And then aggressively going after anyone, businesses included, even popular home state businesses that get in their way. Our friend and colleague, Sage Eastman, has a great line. Uh, I'm sick and tired of Republicans being better for business than businesses for business. It, it all seems sort of part and parcel of this devolution of the sort of the Chamber of Commerce view in, in Republican Party politics. Well, guys, let's uh, let's wrap it up. What are our predictions for uh, the outcomes of the midterms? House, Senate, Margin, Melman, what say you? Uh, Republicans will pick up 21 in the House and they will pick up uh, two net in the Senate. David? Ooh. Uh, I think there's a good chance that we end up back in the same place, but maybe we've exchanged some Senate seats here for a 50-50 tie that continues. Um, <laughs> in the House here, I was I was feeling a little down on our chances a week ago, but I will say that Jonathan Martin's book has put a new spring in my step, <laughs> saying there's a chance uh, to hold on here. <laughs> you heard it here. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks, thanks Dean. Dean. Thanks for listening to today's podcast brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.